Hashem is speaking to Moshe and Aharon, saying, Zos chukas I'm now going to give you the chayk of the Torah, which is the laws of Paraduma. So this is a Chumash Rashi session, so obviously there's lots of Mepharshim, there's lots of Chasidis, there's lots of Midrashim, and we're not going to touch any of them because we'll never have any time because we're trying to get through the Rashi. So, Zos chukas ha-tayra. So the question obviously is, why is Hashem introducing the mitzvah by saying this is the chayk of the Torah? It's a mitzvah. There, there are 613 of them. Why on this one specifically, this mitzvah of Paraduma, does it have an introductory statement as this is the chayk of the Torah? So the answer Rashi gives is because specifically for this mitzvah of Paraduma, the satan or the nation say, what's going on here? What, what this is, is this an, an irrational commandment? There's no reason. You took cow and you burnt it and you're sprinkling the ashes with the water and then you become pure. So the Torah says, yes, this is a chayk. Chuka from the word chayk. As we know, there's edus, chukim, and mishpatim. A chayk is a command that's irrational. It is, let me say that more correctly. A chayk is a command that's super rational. This is a chayk. Gezerah It's a gezera, And you don't have the right to question it. I have to just stick it on the chastidus. I'm sorry, but how can one say that without? The Rebbe Rayat says that really every single mitzvah we do, we have to approach as a chayk. Eidus is a testimony, like Shabbos. Testimony to creation. Mishpat is a rational law, like thou shalt not steal. And a chayk is paraduma. Or many others. Shatnas, pashras. When I do a chayk, I know I have no clue why. It's just because God said. When I'm doing something that seemingly makes sense to me, and I seemingly understand the reason, it's a chayk. Do it just because Hashem said. Vayikhu elecha the Pasuk says, and they should take to you the para-aduma. Now, Rashi questions this, and when I read the Rashi questions, what we really mean is the person learning Chumash questions, Rashi's answering our question. So what does it mean that they should take to you? It's, 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 not, it's not to you. The paraduma is not brought to the Kayin and the paraduma is not brought to Moshe. So what they should take to you, the paraduma? So elecha to you, and it's also singular. In other words, if it meant to you in the plural, like to you, Moshe and Aharon, it would be alechem, to use. But it's to you. So the main you here is Moshe. The Rashi says that it's being taken to Moshe, not tangibly, but connected to Moshe that we say this is the para that Moshe made in the Midbar. And all future paradumas connect to this paraduma that Moshe made in the Midbar. Why? Because, as of course the laws are explained in the Rambam, that every paraduma has to have mixed in their ash, ashes from the original one prepared by Moshe. So there are a total of ten paradumas. Of course, the tenth will be made from Melch HaMashiach. But all of the nine made thus far, starting with the first made by Maisha, the other eight all had in it from the ash of Maisha. So every cow's ashes, every paraduma is ascribed back 
to Moshe. That's why we get The third Rashi here, the Pasuk says, para aduma tmima. A pure para aduma. So I would think, okay, a pure para aduma means she's got to be Tomim, you know, completely without any blemish, which I'm used to because I know every carbon can't have a blemish. But then the Pasuk goes on to say, that doesn't have a blemish. Um, wait a minute. What's the function of the word tmima, pure without a blemish, when the Pasuk explicitly continues to say, Asher Eimbamun, that doesn't have a blemish. So Rashi explains, Aduma tmima, what we mean, and that's why in the Dibra Hamaschal you have not only the word tmima, which is the word we're questioning, but the word Aduma tmima, because Rashi's comment is on both, that the word tmima is actually modifying the word Aduma, meaning it should be tamim perfect in its aduma, in its redness, which means, famous laws, that even if there are two black hairs, Rashi says, well, for that matter, any other color hairs, blue would also be a problem, or green, or gray, if there are two hairs of a different color than the red, it's disqualified. It's not pure in its redness. If there was one hair, it's still considered pure. This is actually an example where Rashi comments before you have the question to obviate the question. Meaning when the child is reading the Pasuk, he doesn't have a question when he reads the, he reads the word Tamima. He knows pure, right, like he can't have a mum. Then he reads the next four words, that's your Aimba mum, and he's like, wait a minute. But Rashi here, since the commentary, the word that's taken out of its simple context, excuse me, is the first word Tamima, and not the following phrase, that's your Aimba mum, he explains it on Tamima and removes the question we would have when we read the next four words. The third Pasuk. So here you take this perfectly red cow, which has no blemish, which a yoke was never put on it, meaning the cow could not have ever done work. If it did, that also disqualifies it. Give this cow to El Azur the Kohen. He has to take it out of the camp. And it should be shechted. Someone should shecht it in his presence. So the first comment Rashi says is El Azar, meaning El Azar was not the Kohen Gadol, Aram. El Azar is the son of Aram. He was the Skan Kohen, the like second in command, if you will. So why does it say to El Azar? We would think such a great holy act would be to the Kohen Gadol. So Rashi says, no, specifically why El Azar? That's specifically the mitzvah. The mitzvah, in other words, cannot be done by the Kohen Gadol. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, well, let's give Elazar a turn to do something. Specifically, we don't want the Kohen Gadol. And actually, at that point, we don't want any other Kohenim. We want specifically the Sgan Kohen, the second in command, to do this mitzvah. That is true for the first power, the power that was made by Moshe in the Midbar. In the Gemara, about the other Paradumas, there's a dispute about exactly who could be supervising them. But for this specific para, it could not be the Kohen Gadol, and it could not be any other Kohen. At that time, there was one other Kohen, Elazar. I'm sorry, this is Elazar, Isamar. Pinchas hasn't become a Kohen yet. We have Isamar, the other Kohen. We have Aaron, the Kohen Gadol. Specifically, we want to be Elazar, the Skan. I think I just messed up the names. We have Aaron, the Kohen Gadol. Nope, not him. We have Isamar, another Kohen. Not him. We want it specifically Elazar, Skan. Next Rashi, so the Pasuk says, okay, now we got the fact it's got to be Elazar, the Skan. 
the second in command. The Pasuk says, take them out of the camp. So Rashi says, what do we mean by the camp? This means outside the three camps. Meaning, in the Midbar, there were three camps. Parallel to which, of course, there were three camps in Eretz Yisrael. The grounds of the Mishkan was called Machna Shechina, the camp of Shechina. Surrounding Machna Shechina is where the Levium camp, they camped around the Mishkan. That's called Machna Levium, the camp of Levium. Surrounding the camps of the Levium was where all the other Shvetim camped in four groups of three, three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, and three to the west. That's called Machna Yisrael. So this midst of the para, meaning the shechting and the burning of the para, happened outside all three camps, just like in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, we have the Beis HaMikdash proper, which is the camp of the Shechina. We have the rest of Har Habayis, which is parallel to what was considered Machana Leviya, the camp of Leviyim. And then we have the rest of Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim within the walls of Yerushalayim, which was parallel to Machana Yisrael, the camp of Leviyim. So here, Mechutzla Machana, has to be outside all three camps. Then the Pasa continues, Vashachat Osa Lefanav. And it should be shechted before him. So therefore, Rashi clarifies that obviously, therefore, this means Allah is not doing the shafting, and even a non-kohen, a zar, shaykhet, Allah is watching the shaykhet. He's not doing the shaykhet. So who's doing the shaykhet? We don't know. So therefore, it could be anyone. So that's why Rashi says, a zar can shaykhet. Not that a zar had to. A zar here means a stranger to the kohen, because he's not a kohen. Rashi is saying it could even be a non-Kayim because we're not specifying who's the Shaykhet. In other words, it doesn't really make a difference. The point is the watching of it, the supervision of it, is this Kayim, again, the skun. As I told you in future times, it's really a Machlekes. One opinion holds that all the other ones were under the Kayim Gadol, and others hold that, no, the Dafka, any Kayim could do it, and not the Kayim Gadol because for the same reason here, we don't want the Kayim Gadol to get something. Okay, Pasuk Dalit. So now Elazar takes from the blood with his finger and he sprinkles the blood toward the front of Ayhamayid seven times. And Rashi says, now this of course is talking about in the Midbar where Elazar is standing outside the three camps and he has to be looking and being able to see the front of the Ayhamayid. In the times of the Beis HaMikdash, meaning the other eight parajimas that were made, the Kayin is standing to the east of Yerushalayim. East of Yerushalayim, the Kayin was actually on Harzaisim. And he has to put himself that he could see the entrance of the Heichal, meaning the entrance of the structure of the Beis HaMikdash proper when he's sprinkling the blood. Now, the Rambam here clarifies, Rambam actually explains this very explicitly in Hilchot Beis HaBechira, that when they built the Beis HaMikdash, with this halacha in mind, as one of probably the many reasons, 
They built it in a series of ascending step, 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 because there's a very high gate around, there's actually a series of gates around the, around the whole Harabayas, the whole Temple Mount, and around the whole area of the Beis Hamikdash, and around the, the Azara. There's gates, gates, gates. So Lechaira, the Kohen, who's standing on Harzaisim, if he's eyeballing this area and he wants to see into the Heichal, his eyes can encounter a bunch of very high gates. He'll never be able to see into the Heichal. He won't be able to see into the structure of the temple. But they made this with many ascending steps. You go up so many steps to this level, then so many steps to this level, and then you get to the Ezra's Nashim, and then you go up more steps, and then you get to the Azar of Levim, and then you get to the area in front of the Heichal. So actually, it was exactly structured that when the Kohen Sanhar is and he's looking straight, his eyesight can go over all the gates and literally go through the entrance of the Beis HaMikdash proper, the entrance of the Heichal, that his eye should be able to see straight to the Preichas, the curtain right in front of the Kodesh Kedoshim. As he's sprinkling the blood, that should be his kavana. And he's literally eyeing it. Okay? Then Pasuke continues that, again, as the kohen Elazar is watching, someone is burning the kohen, the cow, sorry, burning every part of the cow. Pasuk Vav, then the kohen takes a few things, Eitz Erez, which is cedar wood, and Azov, which is another type of plant, and a piece of wool that was dyed red. And he throws all this into the burning ash of the cow. So all this actually gets burnt in. At this point, the kohen then has to, it says, wash his clothing. This is now, sir, we're on Pesach Zion. The kohen is washing his clothing. And I'm turning the page to Chumash. And he's washing his flesh. Then he can come back into the camp. And the crane's going to be impure until evening. So Rashi says, what does it mean that he can come back into the camp? To which camp is he coming back into? Remember, we said there's three. There's the camp of the Shekhinah, the Ayamayid, the camp of the Leviyah, the Leviyim surrounding the Ayamayid, and the camp of Israel, all the Yidin surrounding the Leviyim. So Rashi explains, when I said he can come back into the camp, I mean to the inner, innermost camp, the camp of the Shekhinah. How do I know this? Because in various situations of impurity, most of the time, the only camp people are excluded from are the camp of the Shekhinah. The Rashi says, a Zav, a man, or for that case, it could be a woman, a Zav, or a man, who has a certain type of spiritual emission, I mean a physical emission that we view as a spiritual impurity, it's called a zav, a balkari, someone who has an emission of zara, or a mitzayra, someone who's suffering zara, those three are the only categories of people that are excluded from all three camps. Every other impurity, whenever it says they're outside the camp, it means only the innermost camp, the camp of Shekhinah. So therefore Rashi says, so to here, there's no reason this one should be different than the majority, the camp he couldn't get into until nightfall is the camp of the Shekhinah. The Pasuk said, 
and the kohen is impure until evening. So the Rashi says, wait, this, this Pusik's out of order. I mean, I don't understand what the Pusik's saying. The Pusik says, he washes his clothing, he washes his flesh, he goes into the camp, and then the kohen's impure until evening. Goes into the camp, but then he's impure until evening? The Rashi says, no, and this is Rashi a number of times uses this principle that we have to invert the wordings of the Pusuk. He's impure until evening, and then afterwards, the phrase that came before it, he can go into the camp. It just logically doesn't make sense any other way. I'm just noticing the time, so I'm taking longer than I said I would, so I will try to do this more quickly. The next pasuk, pasuk has eight. Now, what about the person who burnt it? He also has the same issue, meaning he's also impure. He also has to wash his clothing. He also has to wash his flesh. Um, whenever it says wash the flesh, it always means to go into mixa. And he's also impure until evening. Pasuk test. Now we need another man. We had the Kayin who supervised. We had the person who shechted. We had the person who burnt. And now we need another man who's pure to gather the ash of the cow. And the Pasuk says, place it outside the camp. The Makam Tahar in a pure place. And we have to keep this because this is the ash that's going to give purification. So, Rashi has a long Rashi here explaining where did they keep this ash. And remember, in all of our history, they only made nine paradumas. And they always had, they never ran out of the ashes. They don't have any such mitzias. That means for over a thousand years, the ash of those nine cows sufficed. So they obviously very, very sparingly used a very little bit of ash, and they were very careful where it was. So where was it? The Rashi explains that they split it into three parts, and each part had a different function. I'm just going to do this quickly now that I'm looking at the time. One part was put in Harzasim. One part was given to the Mishmaros. The Mishmaros means that the Kahinim basically divided, instead of all the Kahinim, all the time, being in the base of Mikdash, and then like, well, who gets to do what? So they divided it into 24 watches, based on the 24 families of the Kahinim that, of course, eventually developed. This, this division took place, I believe, in the time of David Shlomo HaMelech, when they did this, that every week, another family is Mishmar, another family got a chance. Basically, over the year, you had like, two times where you had one week each of being a Kayin serving in the base of Mikdash. So the watch, whoever was the group of Kayinim that were then serving, they got a portion. They got the main portion, actually, because that's the portion that was used. There was a portion on Harzasim, and there's a portion in the Chayel. The Chayel is the area immediately outside the wall of the Chatzir, of the courtyard of the base of Mikdash. So why do we have it in three sections? So the area for the 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 Mishmaros, the watches of the Kayanim, they were the ones that had the ash that was used, meaning the ash was used if someone's impure from the impurity of contact with a dead body. So if someone became impure and they needed to be sprinkled, as we're going to learn twice on the third and seventh day, they had to go to the Kayanim of the Mishmar, of that Mishmar who gave them from the ash. That was the obvious one. Why do we need in Harazasin? So in the future, those Kohanim, or actually Rashi here says Kohanim Gedolim, so Rashi's following here the Deya, that after this one, all the other paros were supervised by the Kohen Gadol. 
which is a lot of commentary on, but we don't have time for it. Um, so all future Kohanim Gedolim that get impure by supervising the next Paraduma, they are purified specifically by those acid on a And why in the Chayel? So that's because Pasuk says in Pasuk here, it should be for the Jewish people as, as, as a safeguarding. So we need a portion of the ash not being utilized in a functional capacity to purify, which was a function of the ash of the Mishmaros and of even the function of the ash and Harazesim. This is just for the sake of being there. And that's the ash in the Chayot. The Pesach goes on to say, Lemein Nida, for waters of sprinkling. As Rashi explains, Nida means sprinkling, and Rashi brings Shepsotim to prove that. And then the Pesach says, Chatas he, it is a Chatas. Of course, the question is, what do you mean it's a Chatas? This isn't Chatas, this is a Paradum. So Rashi gives two answers to what does it mean it's a Chatas, not Chatas. First, Rashi says, Chatas is from the word Chitoi, which means to purify. It is purification, which is what the Baraduma's ashes were. And then the second answer, but then, of course, a person would say, well, then why is it, why is it called chata? Chata implies like a carbon chata. So Rashi gives a second answer, which there must be some connection here between the Baraduma ash and the carbon chata. It's just like the carbon chata, the Baal, the person who's offering the carbon gets no benefit from it. I mean, meaning it gets burnt to Hashem in a portion the Kayan gets. So to hear the person going through this ceremony of the ash of the paraduma is not getting any personal benefit from it. Unlike other carbonos, which obviously you're eating the meat, etc. Okay? So here, this person, remember, we said this very cute person had to gather the ash and place it in these three places, plus the kid says, and then by doing that, he becomes tummy and he's impure until evening. So it's interesting, if you notice the pattern, that every single person basically involved in the process of creating the ash of the para aduma to purify, everyone becomes impure by their involvement in the process, which of course is part of the fact that it is a chayk. Okay, so that was the first time sukkim explaining the creation of this ash. The next sukkim, until the end of our portion today, is explaining so how does it use what happens. So. In the 11th Pasuk, so here we have anyone who touches a corpse of a human is impure for seven days. And on the third and seventh day of his impurity, he gets this waters mixed with the ash sprinkled on him to create his purity from the most impure thing possible, a human dead body. And if he doesn't do this, the public says he won't be pure. So Rashi explains when it says, Hu boy, he should purify himself with it. The it here means the ash of the par, and one can, the reason why Rashi has to clarify is because boy is masculine with it, not bo, and a para is feminine. So Rashi is clarifying, we're talking about the ash, the afer. And afer is also masculine, so bo masculine, afer masculine, we're safe. The next pasuk, pasuk whoever touches a dead body, a human soul who died and does not purify himself, he makes the Mishkan impure. He will be cut off from Qal Yisrael because he didn't go through this purification. The impurity is still on him. 
so the question is, why does the Pasuk say, a corpse, a dead body? Why do I need the term with the soul of a human? So Rashi gives two answers. One answer is because a mace, you might think, also means an animal that's dead. An animal that's dead does not require you to go through this purification. If a person came in contact, if a person touched the carcass of an animal, he does have some impurity, but he doesn't need a seven-day waiting period, and he doesn't need the sprinkling of the ash and waters of the parajuma. Another explanation Rashi says is that the nefesh could imply the blood because it says hadam hu nefesh. So if someone didn't literally touch a dead body, but they touched the blood, which actually doesn't mean a lot of blood, it's like three and a half ounces of blood, that came from a corpse, they already would require this purification. That's benefesh, to imply the soul, the life, which is the blood that's transmitting the soul energy. Oh, you touched the body. Well, you had contact with the blood that came out of a dead body. You also have to go through this whole seven-day impurity, twice sprinkling. Then it says he made the Mishkan of Hashem impure. How can he make the Mishkan of Hashem impure? What do you have to do with the Mishkan of Hashem? Darashi says if he goes into the Azura, if he goes into the courtyard without the sprinkling, even if he went to Mikvah, he could say, wait, I waited seven days, and I went to Mikvah. Come on. What was you saying, though? If you didn't have this sprinkling twice, once on the third day and once on the seventh day, not only are you impure, you're carrying on your impurity to others. As Rashi says, O Tomaso Bo, his impurity is still on him, meaning he, he did try to impure, he tried to purify himself. He waited seven days. He went to mix up, but no, oi, still, despite everything you did, even though you went to Mikvah, Rashi says, you still have this impurity because you did not have the sprinkling. The next Pasuk, Pasuk Yudalit, this is a teaching regarding any person that says that dies in a tent. Whoever enters the tent, and here we're not saying you have to even touch the dead body, you're just in the room of the dead body. Whoever's in the tent is impure for these seven days. So it means that whoever entered the tent, whoever walks into this tent, so Rashi explains, it doesn't mean the tent always, for the rest of the life of the tent, if you walk into it, you become impure. It means as long as the corpse is still in the tent. The next pasuk, the 15th pasuk, if you have an open vessel that doesn't have a cover fastening it, it absorbs the impurity if it's also in that tent. Again, it doesn't have to be in a tent. It means a room where there is any enclosed structure, where there's a dead human body, there's this impurity. So if there's a vessel that's not completely sealed, as Rashi explains, it says an uh, open vessel. So Rashi says we're talking about an earthenware vessel, a klicheres. A klicheres does not absorb tumor from the outside. So even though it's in this enclosed structure with a corpse, but it only gets impurity from the inside. So as long as it has a very, very tightly sealed cover, it's not going to become impure. And you could take it out of the room, the structure with the corpse, and actually use it, no problem. 
But if it's not covered with a cover that's completely fastened, the air of impurity went inside, and then it becomes, excuse me, impure. And then Rashi says, seal, and seal, Rashi explains, means attached. He says that's in the Arabic language. Seal means attached. Um, a bit of a chlaikis on if he means aravi or ivory, because it's just transposing one letter. Does he mean in the Arabic language or in the Hebrew language? And then Rashi gives an example, which obviously is in the Hebrew language. It's an example from another pasuk in Chumash, naftule lokim niftauti, which is the idea of joining. Okay, the 16th pasuk. Anyone who touches in the open field any, any corpse, someone who was killed by sword, someone who died, a bone, a grave, is impure for seven days. So Rashi questions, why do we have to say in the open field? Meaning, we understand we're not talking about the tent anymore. Why do we say in the open field? Rashi says, our Rabbanim, you say these are extra words. So they're adding things where you normally, outside a structured room where the person passed away, where you'd find the dead in the field, which is, Rashi uses the word goilo and daifek, which means the, I mean, it's a little bit of machlek is what those words mean, but simply this means the pieces that connect to the body, meaning it's mostly goilo, Rashi says, is the board covering the body in the grave, and daifek is the board at the side, Others disagree. Taisos disagrees. Says Gaila is a tombstone. Dofik is a smaller stone. Stone. So we mean is any of these structures that are around the body, the way the body is buried. So even though you're not touching the corpse, but you're touching the tombstone, you're touching the boards. Already, you would absorb the same impurity and have to go through this exact same period. Obviously, now you can understand. I'm sure everyone here has heard that all Jews today are Tame Tomas Mace, are impure with the impurity of a dead body, and we're like, what? I never touched a corpse in my life. Okay, but if you understand now all the ramifications of how one absorbs this impurity, then you can already see how truly all of us probably have had this type of contact of impurity. So that was the first explanation Rashi gives, which is interesting because Rashi first begins with this Rashi, and then Rashi usually his style is opposite, but we don't have time to explain it. And then Rashi gives a more precise explanation, which Rashi is explaining why we have these extra words, to bring out the point that when we, we've said before, when you went into the tent, meaning the contained area where a corpse is found, just walking into that tent or room or structure or house made you impure. But when it's in Pnei Asada, when we're not in a structure, when we're outside in the open, like in a field, you don't become impure unless you literally touch the bone or the grave or the body. And otherwise, you could be an inch away from it. You're not observing the impurity. So then this unclean person goes to this purification, has the ash with the water sprinkled on him, to become pure. And this, this concept of the red heifer is, is really significant of the whole concept of a choik, of something which is completely inexplicable. Why 
is the red heifer what's used? Why is the burning it? Why is the ashes of it? And all of this is really turning to God and saying, God, we don't pretend to understand you. We're serving you. Which, of course, relates to the word chok, both is a term for a law whose reason we don't understand, and also alludes to the idea of chakika, something engraved. We have letters, as they're normally written, ink on parchment, which is two separate entities that have become one. But a much deeper form of oneness is when the letter is literally carved out of the thing itself, like a tablet. And this type of relationship to God is a relationship where it's hakika. Our relationship is so deep, it's not two separate things that have become one. It's the entity itself. So to look at the verses and through the Rashi's understanding some of these laws and symbolism. So we're up to chapter 19, verse 18. And we're here in the middle of this discussion of the person who had become impure through the most intense form of impurity, death. And he needs to have a person who's pure do these various acts with the ashes that have been mixed with the spring water to create purity for him. Because automatically he's impure for a seven-day period. So verse 18, sorry, verse 18. A pure man shall take the hyssop and dip it in the water, the water which has the ashes of the red heifer mixed in it. Now, again, there were a total of 10 red heifers, or to be more accurate, nine. The 10th will be by the redemption. The first was done by Moshe, by Moses, and then there was another eight that were done until the destruction of the temple and the cessation of the service. And the 10th will be by Mashiach. So we're talking about nine over a period of hundreds of years. Obviously, the ashes lasted a very long time. Obviously, it's very, very rare to have this completely red cow with not even two black hairs that has never worked and completely pure and completely healthy and many, many, many other laws that made it very, very, very rare. So the man shall take the hyssop and dip it in the water, the water that has the ashes in it, and sprinkle upon the tent, upon all the vessels, upon the people who were there and upon the one who touched the bone or the slain one or the one that died or the grave. The pure person shall sprinkle upon the impure person on the third day and on the seventh day. And he shall purify him on the seventh day. Then he shall immerse his clothing and immerse his flesh in water and to be pure in the evening. So the person that had contact with the dead, he is impure for seven days, but during the course of those seven days, he gets sprinkled twice, the third day and the seventh day. And then the verse sort of repeats that he shall purify him on the seventh day. So Rashi clarifies, it doesn't mean now an additional sprinkling. We already said he gets sprinkled on the third day and the seventh. So saying he shall purify him on the seventh day means this is like the culmination. This created his purity. The seven days wait, the two days of sprinkling, and then he has to wash his clothing, go into a mikvah, immerse himself, and in evening he is pure. Verse 20. And a man shall be impure and does not purify himself. That person shall be cut off from the midst of the congregation, for he shall have made the sanctuary of God impure. Because the water of sprinkling has not been thrown upon him, he is impure. So if we have a person who was impure, came in contact with the dead, and did not go through this, this purification process, we have a tremendous problem, and he has a tremendous problem. And he actually, if he would go into the temple 
he receives the most severe punitive consequence, courage, excommunication of the soul. Because not only is he impure, but him going to the temple, he's defiling it. Now Rashi sort of begins an allusion to a question and discussion in the Talmud on this, this verse. Because this verse says that if he goes into the temple when he's still impure, then there is this excommunication. If you look previously, we're in verse 20. If you go back to verse 13, it says almost the same thing. But it doesn't say the temple, it says the tabernacle. If he's dead, if he's impure, if he doesn't go through the purification process, then he's defiling the tabernacle and he's going to receive karis, excommunication. So the Talmud asks, wait a minute, why don't you say both? In essence, it's repeating itself and the Torah is careful on its words. So the Talmud explains that if we only had one and not the other, we wouldn't assume the second. Meaning if we only knew about the tabernacle, the Mishkan, what they had in the desert, and not the temple, we would assume it only applies to the tabernacle. If we only knew the temple and not the tabernacle, we would assume it only applies to the temple. The reason being that the tabernacle, they each in in essence had an advantage over the other. The tabernacle, unlike the temple, was anointed with a special anointing oil. That didn't happen in the temple. So that's a certain spiritual advantage. So maybe because of its heightened spiritual state, because it was anointed with this anointing oil, with the Shem and HaMishcha, it cannot handle such defilement. And therefore, if a person enters like that, he, he receives excommunication of his soul. But the temple doesn't have that level of purity, so it's not defiled the same way. Conversely, if it only said temple and not tabernacle, I could think, well, the temple is eternal. Once the temple was built, we could no longer have private altars. But the tabernacle was transient. It was only for a temporary state. So maybe the temple whose sanctity is eternal, if such a high level of sanctity, if you defile it, forget it, excommunication. But the tabernacle doesn't have that intensity because it's not eternal. So therefore, if you defile it, you wouldn't receive excommunication. So therefore, since each one has a spiritual advantage the other does not possess, if it only wrote one, I wouldn't assume the other. And that's why it writes both. Verse 21. This shall be for them an eternal statute, and one who sprinkles the water of sprinkling shall immerse his clothing, and one who touches water of sprinkling shall be impure until evening. So this is sort of a confusing verse. Why is it confusing? Because if we look previously in verse 19, or verse 18 for that matter, it's clearly here talking about a pure person doing these actions. The pure man takes the hyssop. In 19, the pure person sprinkles. So we're saying very clearly that the sprinkler is pure. This seems to say that the sprinkler has attained impurity, and that's why he has to immerse his clothing. So Rashi clarifies that no. Though it says the one who sprinkles, it doesn't mean the one who sprinkles. It means the one who carried the water as a purification actually received an impurity to such a degree that he even needs to wash his clothing. They also received impurity. In other words, actually, his impurity is more intense. It's very interesting here because we're talking about two levels of impurity, and, of course, this makes no sense to us, which goes back to the idea that this is a chayk, a law that doesn't make sense to us because we have here two people here. The verse says the one who sprinkles the water. But we said that doesn't be, that can't be, because verse 19 is clearly saying that the one who sprinkles it is pure. 
So therefore, Rashi says that the one who sprinkles it refers to the one who carries it. The one who carries this water becomes so impure that even his clothes are impure. The one who touches, who comes in contact with the water, becomes impure, but a lesser impurity. Now, why, if we don't mean the one who sprinkles, does the verse say the one who sprinkles? Well, very simply, obviously, you wouldn't fall prey to thinking it means the one who sprinkles, because verse 19 clearly said the one who sprinkles is pure. So you wouldn't have that confusion. So therefore, you would understand that the one who sprinkles is to give you a quantity of water that will create this impurity, meaning who's becoming impure? The one who's carrying the water. Not the priest who's sprinkling it, but the one who brought it to the priest. Well, how much water do you need to carry to become impure? Enough water that would be sufficient for sprinkling, which means if you have in, let's say, a bowl, enough water that if you dip this hyssop stalks into it, they became wet enough to sprinkle. That's what we mean by enough water to sprinkle. And if you had that much water in it, you became impure. So why is it that the person who's carrying the water becomes impure? The water itself creates purity. The person who the water is sprinkled on, who has the impurity of a corpse, becomes pure. And the one who's carrying such water becomes impure? Correct. This is a hike. We don't understand it. I said the one who touches the water of the sprinkling becomes impure, but not the same intensity as the one who's carrying it. Because his impurity does not affect his clothing. His clothing does not have to be washed, so therefore it shows it's a lesser impurity. Verse 22. Anyone whom the impure one shall touch shall be impure, and the person who touches shall be impure until evening. Meaning, we're talking here, we're going back, the impure one here means the person who became impure because of contact with a corpse. That's the impure one we are referring to. And the person who touches the person who came in contact with the corpse now receives impurity. And as Rashi explains that this person, meaning the first person, Reuven, came in contact with a corpse. Shimon later touched or was touched by Reuven. Now Shimon becomes impure until evening. That is incredibly unusual as Rashi explained, normally, if there's a source of impurity and that source is transmitted, like in this case to a person, then the person is impure, but he doesn't have enough impurity in him to transfer that impurity to another person. The only one, the only object that could receive secondary impurity is normally food and drink, meaning if there was a source of impurity and a person touched it, he became impure, and then any food or drink he comes in contact to becomes impure as well, which is okay for him because he's impure, so he can eat impure food and drink, but nobody else can. But that's it. Nothing else becomes impure because he himself is not a primary source of impurity. He's a secondary source of impurity. He became impure through contact with something else, the primary source of impurity. But uniquely with a corpse, because that is called avi avotachumma. That is the most intense form of chumma is death. Death is the absolute antithesis of godliness. As we know, with the primordial sin, death, impurity, evil entered the world. When we have the complete revelation of the redemption, death will be removed. So death symbolizes absolute impurity. So death is so impure 
that if a human comes in contact with this corpse, with death, not only is he impure, but he actually conveys that impurity forward to anything else he comes in contact to, even to a person, which again is completely unique law only in connection with death and any other form of impurity This does not apply. Only when there's contact with a corpse, which again is called avi avos, the absolute most intense primary source of impurity. Now Rashi, at this point, after going through these laws, is going to now bring a jirash, a homiletic explanation. Now, Rashi is a pashtun. He says, I have a function. My function is to explain the literal meaning of the verse. So whenever he brings something that does not sound literal, that actually is literal. Because if it wasn't literal, he, so to speak, wouldn't be allowed to bring it. Meaning Rashi created a self-created box. I explain the literal meaning. So since that's his box, he's very loyal to his box. And if something is not literal, he won't explain it to you. Even if, for example, you have a question, a chuck question, a question on the literal meaning of the verse, but there's no answer that really suffices. And Rashi knows an awesome, perfect answer, but it's not part of the literal meaning of the verse. He'll tell you that. He'll say, oh, there's a great answer, but I can't give it to you because it's not chuck. All right, so for us to see this portion that Rashi, again, as a Pashtun, as someone who has created a box for himself, which is, I only explain the literal meaning of the text, is now going to give us something that seems completely not literal. But we know Rashi never steps outside his box, and therefore, everything here is actually integrated and the only way to understand the literal meaning of the verse. Now, the verses we're going to look at are not the verses in today's portion, because today's portion started with verse 18. This is actually explaining, now we're going back and looking at the first nine verses. And the overarching theme here is that all of the details embedded in the red heifer are actually because, in totality, the red heifer is coming to atone for the sin of the golden calf. And as such, not only in its most broad scope, but also in the precision of the wording, this is all having to do with details of the golden calf. Which, of course, since we're looking at the red heifer as that which eradicates the most intense evil, the evil of death itself, this makes sense that what's really eradicating the evil of the golden calf, because the golden calf is, in essence, actually what brought death back into this world. Meaning when the Jews accepted the Torah, it says the Jews were freed from many things, including death. In theory, at that point, we're beyond evil, beyond the enslavement of the nation, beyond the enslavement of death. We should live forever at that point. But what happened? What happened was we fell with the golden calf and death returned, as did the blurring of godliness and evil, and as did coarseness back to the world. So really, the golden heifer brought death in. So the golden calf, I'm sorry. So as a golden calf brought death back in, the red heifer, which is coming to remove death, is coming to remove the impurity of the golden calf that brought death back once again into our world. So looking back at the verses, in verse 2, 
looking at the nuances here, the precision of these words. It says, and you shall take to you this red heifer, Tamima, purely red, red heifer. So take to you because just as when the Jews sinned with a golden calf, they took from their own, they took from their own jewelry, the men rushed to give their own jewelry to create the golden calf. So to here, take for you, the atonement should be from your own. A red cow, the red heifer, because the calf is like the child of the cow. So just as we can imagine, if a child comes and dirties something, the mom comes and cleans up the mess. So the golden calf dirties. The red heifer, the mother, the cow, is coming to clean up the mess. Red, because the verse compares red to sin. So this is the sin of the golden calf. Now, when Rashi first explained this word pure, per aduma tamima, Rashi was looking as pure as modifying the word red, purely red. But here in the Jarash, which is really the literal meaning as well, the pure is actually explaining the cow, that the cow is completely perfect, symbolizing the Jews who are completely perfect and became blemished through the sin of the golden calf. So the red cow, the red heifer, is coming to help return them to their state of perfection. Now, this red heifer, this red cow, could never have borne a yoke. There's no yoke on it, representing the Jews who threw off God's yoke with their sin. We're supposed to bring this cow, this heifer, to El Azar, the priest, not to Aaron, the high priest, because Aaron was involved with the sin of the golden calf, not that he was doing anything wrong or any lack of belief in God, but to stall the Jews. He was involved in the storyline, and therefore he can't be the one to bring this purification. That was, that's why it was brought to Eleazar, his son. The cow was burnt because the calf was burnt. So this was part of the rectification. Afterwards, when Moses came down, we had a few levels, three different options of Jews who sinned. Jews that sinned with witnesses of warning, 3,000, that were killed by swords. And then Jews in other categories. So for Jews that were not of that category of sinning with witnesses and warning, Moses took the golden calf, burnt it, spread the ashes, mixed the ashes in water, and they drank the water, testing them like the sota. The woman is tested by drinking the water. And if they had sinned, they died through those waters. So just as the, at, the calf was burnt, so to this cow, the atonement here is going through this burning process. We have three varieties that are being brought together to create the atonement, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the red wool, symbolizing, as I mentioned before, those 3,000 men who were the most grievous sinners, the sinners that literally sinned with witnesses and mourning and therefore were killed by the sword. Why specifically the cedar? The cedar is the tallest of all trees. It's joined with these low things, the hyssop, the red wool actually symbolizes something low here because the word for red here, the red wool is tolas, shani, and tolas also means a worm. So like the worm is so low, like the hyssop is so low. So if one has sinned, as here the Jews sinned with a golden calf, you, what is sin coming from? Sin is coming from ego. Sin means you're separating yourself from God. That's the essence rooted in ego. So because of the ego of the sin, which led to the golden calf, 
like the cedar, you're holding yourself so high, how can one return? Lowering oneself, like the worm, like the himself. Now, these ashes of the red heifer are supposed to be kept forever, for generations, as I mentioned earlier. From Moses until now, we've had only nine. So the ashes were kept. They're actually kept, as Rashi explained yesterday, in three sections. A portion that was used over time. A portion that was kept. It was just kept for generations as the part that was just there forever. And the portion that was there for the high priest who would make the other, the next red heifer. So we have literally a part that was just saved. And Rashi says, why do we have that? Because just as the sin of the golden calf was kept for generations, as we're told, that any future punishment that Jews would ever suffer is partially atoning, partially part of the punishment for the sin of the golden calf. So the sin of the golden calf, the sin is kept for the generations, the ashes here have to be kept for the generations. As we learn today, that the whole process of the golden, of the heifer, creates impurity. Like we said, it's sort of strange. The one carrying it, these waters that will bring purity to the other person, render impure the person carrying it. So just as the golden calf made impure all those that came in contact as an idol transmits impurity to anyone who touches it, so too the ashes of the red heifer, anyone who's dealing with it, become impure, even though it itself brings purity. And then, just as ultimately the golden calf's ashes brought this purity, because as I said, the calf was burnt, its ashes were mixed with water, and the Jews were tested, died, and the others rendered pure through it, so too, of course, the ashes of the red heifer bring purity. What type of purity? Purity from death. As we're saying, the golden calf brought death back into the world.